like to pray with you, and uh, Ruben's going to come and pray with me as well. That's kind of you. Um, let's do that. Father God, we do thank you so much. We can be together in your presence uh, this morning. We're so grateful we get to be your community gathered in Oxted, and we're drawn from all over the place, and we pray right now that you would just pour out your spirit from where we are, that we would hear from you, be obedient to you, and pray that wonderful prayer your son taught us to pray, thy kingdom come and thy will be done. Come, fill us, Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Amen. Great. So um, as we've been doing just throughout this series, we've been hearing from different people, and uh, Diana today is going to come and share her testimony. Uh, so give her a warm round of applause. Go for it. Thank you. Um, well, the time police have given me three minutes to talk about over 40 years. So uh, bear with me. This has to be very selective, and I've also, I'm going to read it out, I'm afraid, because I don't feel confident of keeping to time. Um, I was brought up in a church-going family to a Methodist church, and I regularly attended Sunday school, although not very enthusiastically. I believed in God, but that was really as far as it went. When I reached the age of 13, I was invited to be confirmed. I didn't really want to be, but everyone else my age at the church has said yes, and I reluctantly agreed. I went to confirmation classes, but honestly, if the message of the gospel was explained to me then, it went completely over my head. My older sister got saved around this time through a youth event run by a local evangelical Anglican church. The church she started attending also took a large group on a Christian youth holiday once a year. I had been on a school activity holiday a year or two before and wanted to do that again, but my parents said it was too expensive and persuaded me to join my sister on the youth group holiday instead. I think they were motivated by saving money and also having us both away at the same time. <laughs> Little did they realize they were acting as the Lord's agents. Uh, the holiday was run a bit like an intensive alpha course. There were meetings in the morning and evening, activities during the afternoon. All good until we got to the evening meeting about sin and our position before God. I was knocked for six. I absolutely knew I was not right with God, needed to be forgiven my sins, and wanted Jesus in my life, and so I invited him in. Did I have a huge sense of peace, and did I feel filled with joy immediately? Sadly, not really. I do, however, believe that was my salvation moment, but for many reasons, linked, I think, to my upbringing, and working out what that really meant and having assurance took a lot longer. I had a lot of wrong thinking that needed to be reversed, namely that I needed to keep trying harder, still striving, at least subconsciously, to earn my acceptance by God. Weirdly, I think I both thought I wasn't that bad, but also that God couldn't possibly really love me. Uh, completely wrong on both counts. Uh, a couple of years later, on another such holiday, I was baptized in the Holy Spirit, not through teaching of the actual holiday, who they weren't really into that sort of thing, but a renegade group. <laughs> and that's when things started making a lot more of a difference. So what has helped me grow in understanding over the decades since? Uh, the message of grace and understanding it. Obviously preached the night I was saved and at the church I started attending afterwards, but not emphasized enough, I don't think, at least not for me. God's grace really started making an impact on me when Robin and I first started attending what is now Everyday Wimbledon 33 years ago. Uh, we got baptized there around a year after joining. Uh, Freedom in Christ series that some of you know about was massively helpful, so helpful. 
I felt like someone had looked inside my soul when they wrote it. Reading the Bible consistently, this has been a weakness over the years, I confess, and being accountable through Meet the Bible group has really helped me. Spending time with God, ideally at the beginning of the day, helps align my thinking with his. And I think more and more that's the definition of faith, believing what God has said about himself and us, and not focusing just on our circumstances and what the world says about them. Uh, the Lord has remained faithful to me throughout the years, and I can say without hesitation, he is good. Amen. Okay. <laughs> Very good. I do love it. I do love these stories that keep coming, salvation stories. And my hope is that actually, by at some point, everyone will have had a go at this. Uh, and uh, that's not to make you nervous uh, or concerned, but it is to encourage you. It's also good to hear from people um, who have met Jesus and been transformed by him over time. And it's uh, wonderful. Thank you, Diana. And uh, we're going to carry on today. We're going to get into, continue our, ser our series on pursuing Jesus. And uh, by the way, if Reuben does come and see me, uh, it's okay. I, don't, I just don't want to turn him away. Um, I just allow him to do that at this moment in time. So uh, don't worry too much if he does that. Um, but we're going to get straight into it now. And uh, I'm going to describe a board game to you. Um, and I want you to see if you can guess what it is. It's a question and answer game. It's got six categories. And its game pieces look like this. Trail pursuits, yes, well done, yep. We played it at parties when I was growing up, and we found it really, really difficult to do. And uh, you had to go around collecting pieces of pie, wedges to put in the pie itself, and there was often tension and frustration and uh, attempting to answer these questions. But then much joy and excitement when you did get one right, but then you found out you had another five pieces to go, and eventually you had to get to the middle and answer one final question uh, in pursuit of completeness and wholeness of the pie, and, of course, victory. And uh, sadly, we didn't get there very often. Uh, but when we did, there was much rejoicing. My neighbors were much better at it than I was and uh, my family. But um, we're going to come back to that later. But today, we're going to another party. So we had these parties growing up where we played board games. Well, Jesus goes to a party in today's passage. And you might notice the last passage I talked on was a party as well. And that was when a Pharisee interrupted a tax collector's party. Well, this is where uh, someone else interrupts a Pharisee's party. And Luke has these rhythms where he... He ties things all together and makes special emphasis on certain people. So I'm going to read from chapter 7 of Luke's Gospel, 36 to 50, and the story goes like this. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he cancelled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he cancelled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. And turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, 
but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And so when reading this passage, um, three kind of headings jumped out at me. And one was this, sin runs deep. The second was grace runs deeper. And the third is Jesus brings peace. So we'll start with sin runs deep. Now, this story is unique to Luke's gospel, and there's so much in there. You could dig into it for hours. In fact, I did. (laughs) But the first thing I wanted to do was look at these main characters involved and their relationship with sin, because sin runs deep in human beings. And uh, we're going to start with the sinful woman. She has no name. However, she is named three times as a sinner, and then later is three times forgiven. And uh, I just want to look at what do they mean by that word sin initially, because today the word sin really has been trivialized by our culture. We apply it to cake or chocolate or things that we do wrong. Uh, We might apply it to to make light of it rather than take it seriously. And uh, that was completely the opposite case in the first century. Sin was taken far more seriously than it is today. And a sinner back then was simply um, someone who couldn't keep all the rules. They couldn't keep the rules of the Jewish law, God's law, summarized by the Ten Commandments, passed to Moses long ago. And this was recognized. This was known. And the amount of sin that you were guilty of back then really did affect your daily life and your social status, your freedom, your opportunities. And the woman and Simon uh, are at different ends of the social spectrum here. And they're at different ends of the sin spectrum. And of course, the culture back then was different as well. And men and women were very opposite, very different as well in that case. And, uh, and that would have been evident in this situation. You've got two people completely set apart from one another. And in the woman's case, any onlookers would have known she couldn't keep all the rules, hence her name. And her exact sins are, are not uh, named. And reading some of the commentators, it was interesting to see that some did think perhaps she was involved in an area of public life that was seen as specifically very, very bad. So perhaps she was part of the Roman tax system or she was a prostitute or another area where people would have obviously been aware that she had sinned and been breaking these laws um, and not meeting the standard. And she knows her condition and she's humbled by that. And uh, she knows this prior to meeting Jesus and undoubtedly, undoubtedly experienced the weight and the difficulty and the guilt connected with her sin. So you've got this sinful woman. Then on the other end of the spectrum, you've got this guy called Simon the Pharisee. And yes, it is always disconcerting when you find your own name in Scripture. My name is actually Simon, for anyone who doesn't know. And um, in contrast, you've got this Simon the Pharisee. And Pharisee literally means separated one, set apart from others. And he considers himself able to keep the laws. And he hates being near anyone who can't do the same. And from his perspective, Sin is someone else's problem because he sees himself as a fine, upstanding member of society, and he's confident in his religious background. He follows the law uh, to the letter, or so he thinks. And so his outward appearances are very clean, very holy. He knows uh, this, but then he also knows that his own thoughts would contradict that very law. And Jesus knows his thoughts too. He knows our thoughts. I think Dale mentioned it the other week. It's a bit 
scary, but it's happened again. He knows the thoughts of Simon when Simon speaks to himself in verses 39 and 40. Simon says to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. She is a sinner. And Jesus' response is really interesting. He tells a parable. It's a short story with a, a big truth behind it. And he compares Simon and the woman to these two debtors. And it got me thinking about sin and debt. And when praying about it, I, I got into asking the question, how, how can we know we are indebted to God? How does that sense of indebtedness come about? And under, after a little bit of investigation, it's, it's interesting to know that the word sin and debt in many languages are the same. And in, the, in certain Bible translations, you may have even read in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts, so we may forgive our debtors. And so just briefly, I wanted to explore this question. How can we know we're indebted to God? And who knows, it, it, I think really it was God trying to say, look, I really want you to understand this. But as I wrote it, I, I recognized that also it's actually helpful to know so that we can tell anyone else we meet if they ever want to become aware, if they ever want to know why or how we are indebted to this person we know as God. And uh, so we've got a first heading is this. How can we know? Because God is God and we are not. A bit too simple, you might think. Well, yes, it's true. We are finite. He is infinite. He's the creator, the holy one. We've already worshipped him. It was wonderful to hear people declaring who he is uh, in our worship time. He's completely loving. He's completely just. He's omniscient, omnipotent. And he's completely wise, and he is to be feared and reverenced. And as the created ones, we were made to relate to him and live, uh, relate to him as our creator. And he, he gives us everything we need. He gives us our breath. We even sing about it. Uh, we say, it's your breath in our lungs, so we pour out our praise. We, we actually recognize that in our worship, which is really, really great and really important that we come back to that very basic level of recognizing who God really is is. But as you may be aware, not everyone believes that. And uh, I had an old mate at a university in Plymouth who didn't believe that. He didn't believe in God or his authority, and we had these long, long conversations together, and he refused to believe in God. He was what they would call anti-theistic, anti-God. He didn't want to have to submit himself to anyone or recognize anyone as God. And he was God of his own life. He chose to be God in his own life, trying to control everything, trying to be the one who dictated things. But actually, that was really just his way of saying, well, I actually just want to do what I want. I don't want to recognize who God is. And we, you know, we, we went back and forth a number of times on that one. But it just goes to show, if that you put yourself up as God, it kind of shows how small your vision of what God is like, because it's contained by you in that moment. And that really doesn't paint the picture of the God of the Bible. Someone who does paint the picture of the God of the Bible um, in an unfortunate way, but a real and, and kind of a really hearty way, I would say, a way if you want to be affected by it, you go and read his book. The book is called Job, and it's in the Old Testament. And Job, uh, you may already know the story, calls on God to come and defend himself because Job had so much stuff it, God allowed Satan to take it all away. He's sitting in the dust. Job's got nothing left. He cries out to God and says, come on, God, what's going on? I thought you were wise and just. It just doesn't seem that way. I've done nothing wrong. Come and speak to me. Oh, and he didn't know what he was saying. He got into things with God, and God 
did come and speak to him. He said this in Job. It says, then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. I mean, that's a scary thing to start with. Out of a storm, he speaks and God says, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Well, that would make you sit up and listen, I dare say. And it's written in God's word and it's God speaking. And it really is true. He really is mighty. He really is God and we really are not. So that's the first one. The second one is this. How can we know we're indebted to God? Well, because God, being who he is, has the highest authority in the universe and he sets the standard. God's in this position where he is the high judge, the righteous and perfect one, and he makes the laws that govern the universe. The law that was given to Moses in those Ten Commandments, which summarize it, it's those same laws that are then written on our hearts. And so deep down, we know we've broken them. And so we can be indebted. We can know we're indebted to God because of who he is, because he's the highest authority, providing we recognize those two things. And we owe our very lives to him, and yet we go and break his laws again and again and again, even once we know him and love him. We still mess up. We still sin. We still make mistakes. A third thing that helps us understand that we can be indebted to God is a, is a sense, is a feeling, but it's also a legal truth. And it's something I'm sure we're all familiar with. It's guilt. Guilt is an indicator of sin or debt to God. And uh, one thing that evidences it, whether we break God's law deliberately or accidentally, even in a small way, is this sense of guilt. And as I say, it's a, it's a legal term. It's used by a judge or a jury to pronounce someone as guilty. And the feeling of guilt, feeling guilty, is often an indicator of doing that, although that doesn't always mean that you have done wrong. You can still feel guilty without being guilty, if we wanted to get into that. We could. But here's a kind of real-life example for you just to illustrate that point. One of my friends and I went to Red Hill to get a Domino's pizza once, and uh, we literally went to go and grab it. We'd paid for it online. We were going to park, grab it, go away again. Got there, went around the car park, nowhere to park. Really hungry at this point. And uh, we found a space behind a nearby building, and there was, an, there was a no parking sign there. And I persuaded my friend to park there. And uh, we got out, went to get the pizza, came back. And I still remember the feeling as we went round the corner, and we saw the clamp on the car. And uh, we realized we'd only been gone eight minutes, and someone had swooped in and clamped us. And we found the note on the, on the windscreen, and we picked it off, and it said, the price to liberate the car was £240. Needless to say, this was the most expensive pizza either of us had ever purchased. And I felt so guilty for persuading my friend to park there. I felt so awful. And I felt guilty, and we were guilty of parking on private property. And both parties were now in debt to the clamping company, the parking company who put the clamp on. And just like that day, we received the notice detailing our debt that had to be paid before the car could be released because we'd broken the rules. Well, in the same way, all human beings are born with a debt to God passed down from the previous generations. You may know from 
Genesis, Adam and Eve first rebelled against God and humans haven't stopped since and that has been passed on and on and on. And so from day one of our lives, we continually add to it as time goes on and we're naturally born this way. We're naturally selfish, naturally rebel against authority and quite naturally can't keep the rules. And we never have to teach children these things. We never have to teach them to lie. I know this very well. And uh, it, it means that we get this long, long list of things putting us in debt, adding up together. And quite literally, in Roman times, um, if someone was found guilty of a crime and sent to prison, their, their sins, their things that they'd done wrong were itemized on a list and literally nailed to the door of the prison cell that they were in. And that corresponded to the time they had spent there to work off that debt. And it was called a certificate of debt given to them. And all of us have one of those, held by God, the ultimate judge, and corres- the corresponding penalty for it, quite rightly, is death and separation from him. And uh, just as an aside, one of the possibly hardest but, but most important things we can tell people about who might want to know Jesus, and particularly our children as well, is that they have this debt to God, that they are sinners. And no one likes to be told they do stuff wrong. No one likes to be told they're a sinner, but we have to do it. We have to help people acknowledge they have a certificate of debt because it runs really deep whether people believe it or not or like it or not and I try to explain this to my friend it leads to death separation from God it leads to pollution of our lives it leads to bad uh, stuff bad relationships as well as a result unless of course someone pays that debt of sin that we hold before God which brings us Right back to our passage, because Jesus, he stands between two contrasting people, Simon and the woman. And what he does is he triangulates them. He connects the two through this parable, this very short parable. And both are debtors. One owes 50, perhaps. One owes 500. And both are faced with this reality that sin runs deep in the human hearts. Neither could repay the debt they owed, whether it was 50 or 500 in this case. And they stand before him who knew no sin, who instead is full of grace. See, sin runs deep, but then Jesus and grace run deeper. Which brings us to the next part, because Jesus accepts Simon's invitation to dinner. And and he's essentially an enemy. Jesus knows that the Pharisees are going to be the ones that ultimately get him put up on the cross. And he loves this guy, Simon. He has compassion on him. Because he knows Simon is seeking his true identity. And they recline at table, which always makes me think of Yorkshire. Um, recline at table. And um, they sit like spokes in a wheel with their feet facing outwards, leaning on their left elbow, heads all into the middle to keep things kosher and clean and hygienic. And at this banquet, they're all sat at the table. But what we probably don't normally twig from this passage is that onlookers, people from the outside, were also able to be present at the banquet, but they would have had to stand against the wall. Jesus is still in public when this is going on. It's not like our homes where we shut the front door and people uh, are left outside and can't look in on what we're doing. It's not private in that way. They come and line the wall and in bursts this sinful woman who then immediately undertakes eight actions in this passage. She learns where Jesus is. She brings a jar of ointment. She stands at his feet. She weeps. She washes and wipes and kisses his feet and then anoints them. There's a number, so many actions, so many things happen in this moment where she's come before him. She shows extreme determination to honor 
and love and worship Jesus. And what grabs me is the fact that she actually bent down and wipes his feet with her hair, and she makes herself dirtier and him cleaner, and feet and hair just don't really go together, do they? They've been on the road. They weren't meant to be washed with heat. Feet, it's, uh, sorry, hair and feet are getting mixed up. But they, it's not hygienic at all. It's this, it's this enormous demonstration by this woman. And they're actually the actions of a true host, which makes Simon the Pharisee's actions look decidedly frosty. And Jesus says to Simon, he highlights this. He says, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. A simple woman takes a huge risk, showing amazing faith. She could have faced judgment and the wrath of Jesus and Simon breaking these social barriers of the day. But Simon, he broke different barriers by not honoring Jesus to the extent which was proportionate to who he is, to his true identity. And yet, Jesus extends grace to them both. Grace to the sinful woman by not rejecting her, and grace to Simon in his self-righteousness without passing on judgment on him either. Both are revealed as debtors and are made aware of their good deeds are not enough to pay the full sin debt that they owe. And both, therefore, need God's grace. And Jesus' grace to sinners runs deeper than their sin. This is such a wonderful truth, a marvelous revelation, because wherever we've been, whatever we've done, even though we don't deserve it, even though we can't earn back the debt that it has to be paid by someone else, Jesus is able to forgive and restore us. You see, sin runs deep, but grace runs deeper, and Jesus in love brings peace. In the final verses, he says to Simon, therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus explains here that the woman's sins are forgiven. And in other translations, you may have seen it, um, that uh, it says, your sins have been forgiven, which, again, commentators say that indicates that this isn't the first time that she's come to receive forgiveness. She's been forgiven, but she's come back to Jesus. And it's a gratitude uh, that reflects her love for him for what he has done for her through forgiving her sins. And as one commentator put it, he said, the sinful woman's love is the effect of forgiveness, not the cause. See, this woman is worshipping Jesus, and it's wonderful. We've been worshipping Jesus, but I don't think anyone's worshipped him in such a way as she did. It was a wonderful act um, of, uh, a, a wonderful display of love and uh, honor of him. And again, in contrast, we've got Simon, who's forgiven little, and therefore he loves little. He doesn't go to the extent this woman does to honor Jesus. But you see, the extent that you believe and understand uh, what you have been forgiven of directly affects the extent of your worship and love of Jesus. And I just want to illustrate this. I don't think Benjamin's in the room. Um, I think Helen's going to go and get him. But in a moment, I'm going <laughs> to. it's a longer way than it would have been otherwise. 
Uh, um, we're going to illustrate that in a moment. But this is the reality that our understanding, that how much we actually sit and reflect on what we've really been forgiven of and what, how big a debt we've really had repaid by Jesus does affect our worship. And uh, as we're going to illustrate in a minute, if you bounce on the trampoline with us, uh, you go low. You know that. The trampoline goes down depending on how much Chinese you ate the night before. And then on the upward journey, you pass the midline, and that natural inertia sends you up and higher than you were before. And the harder you bounce down, well, the higher you go. And I really had this kind of revelation when reading this passage that we really need to take some time out sometimes to sit and reflect on what we've been saved from. If you go to Psalm 40, there's a vivid description of what sin is like from God's perspective, a mud and mire. Come on, Benjamin, you can help me out here. And mud and mire, and we're saved from muck and dirt and the swamp. And uh, we're just going to demonstrate what that's like. And uh, do you want me to hold, sorry, I forgot his name. Do you want me to hold Difa for you? Yeah? Could you just demonstrate for us what this is like? Could you jump on and then off the trampoline for me? That'd be great. (laughs) Ta-da! Benjamin, do you want to do it one more time just for fun? It's all right, I've got parents' permission for this. So one, two, three. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, nice, good. And here's Difa. Can you catch him? Here we go. Good job. <laughs> but yeah, just like a trampoline. And, and I just want to encourage you in that, guys, that if you are reflecting on this in the coming week, you might take it into life groups and just try and help each other with this because it's so significant. Because again, this woman has been forgiven so much. She's so aware of her sins. She breaks all the barriers to get to Jesus and here Jesus is proclaiming the best news ever when he says your sins are, be- are forgiven because it's what he says to us once our faith is in him. And soon after this episode, Jesus goes on to procure our salvation through death on the cross. He goes to pay that debt on the cross and uh, he went through it for you and for me and we are so grateful for that. And those final words in this passage are just so significant. He says to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. It doesn't matter how many works you've done. It doesn't matter how many good deeds you've put out there for God, for Jesus. They can't save you. You can't pay off the certificate of debt that you have racked up against God. And uh, there's a great summary of this uh, in Ephesians 2.8. You might know it. We're saved uh, by grace through faith in Christ alone. And an even better, I think, in this case, Um, description of what has happened um, is recorded in 2 Colossians as well. It says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses or sins by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The debt has been paid. It has been paid. It's been nailed to the cross. Your debt, my debt, if your faith is in Jesus, doesn't exist. It's been nailed to the cross, which now stands empty because Jesus died for it and then rose again. You see, our sin runs deep. We are depraved. We need to remember what we've been saved from and what we've been saved to. We need to believe again that God's grace runs deeper still than our sin and by it, he redeems us and can redeem anyone above their station. We can't, can't, I can't disqualify anyone from the possibility of being redeemed and saved by Jesus. And actually, we need to step into worship 
that is proportionate to the truth we've just declared. We need to allow that adoration and praise to overflow. And we've already touched on this this morning. I love how God does this. He draws out worship. And if we're not worshiping in proportion to the truth that we know about ourselves in this canceled debt, then actually it's time to dig into why. You, you might want to do a freedom session with him. You might just want to take a day out to um, reflect and just retreat from the world for a bit and ponder these things and, and ask God these questions. Talk to Jesus yourself. That would be my encouragement to you. But to conclude, through this story, it's Jesus who has won the trivial pursuit. And to pursue Jesus is not trivial. I should point that out. It's a very important thing to do. But in this story, all the wedges that reveal Jesus' identity have been put into place. And again, Luke is a very, very clever gospel writer because the previous passage um, represents the different pieces of the pie. When John the Baptist asks, is this the Messiah? Is this the one we've been waiting for, referring to Jesus? Jesus responds, he says, go and tell John, verse 22 of the same chapter, the blind receive their sight, slice one. The lame walk, slice two. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear and the dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Six pieces of pie. And by the grace, Jesus answers the onlooker's question in that house on that very day. All these bits of his identity have completed prophecies from the past. And it's all there for them to discover. And yet they ask, who is this who even forgives sins? Well, it's Jesus, the Son of God, God incarnate himself, the fulfillment of the Old Testament, word become flesh. And the final question, perhaps the one that brings about salvation and freedom, completeness and worship, just like getting to the center of the board, is this. Is it true? Is he really the Messiah? The correct answer is, he is. He sends her away with completeness. Shalom is the word because he's paid the debt of this sinful woman's uh, sins. He's brought about shalom, completeness, and peace and victory. Amen. We're going to stand there. Uh, no more talking about trivial pursuit. But I would love the, 